Joshua chapter number 11. I'll begin reading here in verse number 1. You follow along with me. The Bible says, And it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, had heard those things, that he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, to the king of Akshaph. Like one of my preacher friends said, Can you imagine calling that crew to dinner? (laughs) Man, ain't that something? (laughs) That's Brother Wheeler. He says that anyways. Uh, Verse 2 in the Bible says, And to the kings that were on the north of the mountains, and of the plains south Chinneroth, and in the valley, and in the borders of Dor on the west, and to the Canaanite on the east, and on the west, and to the Amorite, and to the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Jebusite in the mountains, and to the Hivite under uh, under Hermon in the land of Mizpeh, Uh, They went out, they and all their host with them, much people, even as the sand that is upon the seashore in multitude, with horses and chariots, very many. When all these kings were met together, they came and pitched together at the waters of Merim to fight against Israel. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Be not afraid because of them, for tomorrow about this time will I deliver them up, all slain before Israel, thou shalt hock their horses, and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua came, and all the people of war with him against them by the waters of Merim suddenly, and they fell upon them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who smote them and chased them unto great Zidon, and unto Mizroth Maim, and unto the valley of Mizpeh eastward, and they smote them until they left them none remaining." And Joshua did unto them as the Lord bade, and he hocked their horses and burnt their chariots with fire. Now that's a great passage. We'll stop reading right there, but man, what a, what a massive multitude is engaged in this northern campaign as the sand of the sea. And Joshua and the Israelites go out there with the promise of God and slap them head on. And if you look at that thing, they split three ways. When Joshua, Joshua and the Israelites hit them so hard, like just imagine a big bowling ball hitting a bunch of pins, they go three directions. And uh, what, a, what, a, what a wonderful book you got there. And then the rest of the chapter is about fighting. Amen? It's all about fighting. And uh, Dad, why don't you pray and ask the Lord's help in the preaching this morning. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. Now, the last time we were together uh, a couple weeks ago in the book of Joshua, because in the intermeal it was tis the season to be jolly and all the rest of that stuff. So I'm I'm hoping and praying that you've survived the season and come through it better than you went into it. Amen. But a couple weeks ago when we were in Joshua chapter 10, we preached about those hidden sins. Remember that? And we preached about how those hidden sins, uh, and we preached against our own old man, our own spiritual nature, and how uh, the spiritual nature and the old man is like those kings that honestly just need to be stuffed in the cave and the stone rolled against it and kept it in there. Why? Just to keep your devilmen at bay. 
and we preach ad nauseum, and I'm not trying to re-preach, but I'm trying to uh, kind of segue this thing where we're at. We preach about the hidden sins because once they come out into the open, then you got to go ahead and put your foot on their necks, and you got to deal with it, and you got to kill it. And if they get back up, you got to get after it again, and you got to keep going after it, and you got to keep going after it, and you can't quit, and you got to keep going after it till you beat it. We preach about those hidden sins. And here we come into that's the southern campaign. But here uh, we're going to go a little bit north, amen. <laughs> we're gonna, wouldn't you like to go a little farther north like the third heaven, amen, this morning? Uh, I'm kind of homesick for a country myself, amen. Uh, if we could get out of here today like one of the old men prayed in the back, that'd be all right with me. It really would be. I'm not just saying that. I've got plenty to say here, probably more than I should say, but I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to see him face to face. Uh, the one who saved me by his grace. I've, I've lived only 48 years here, and I've had enough. Uh, but I'm sure the Lord has more for me to do. And if he's got more for me to do, no doubt he's got something for you to do. But here in chapter 11, we're going to run into the northern campaign. The northern campaign. And we're heading up north. And the northern campaign that Israel uh, launches against the inhabitants of the land is at the order of Jehovah God. And, of course, this, these are the passages that all the Muslims grab and use to excuse their holy war. But what this is, God is ordering Israel to go through this land and root out the inhabitants of it. Uh, now, you've got to remember something as we go up to uh, uh, chapter 11 here. You can never forget that the Lord is a man of war. That Bible says that in Exodus chapter 15, verse 3. You say, why you say that? Well, I say that because you need to be reminded of it. And not only that, the whole uh, God is love crowd gets a little wound up when you talk about God being a man of war. <laughs> they do. Well, God is love. He is. The Bible says twice that God is love, and they're both found in 1 John. Amen? But you can never forget that the Lord is a man of war. And, uh, and if, you don't, if you don't appreciate that, I can understand, but maybe it's just your old man screaming from inside the cave. You ever stop and get your voice mixed up with the man from the cave? I do all the time. I go, is that really me, or is that the old man that's in the cave? You say, what should I do? I just roll another stone across his mouth and tell him to shut up, amen? <laughs> I'm sorry, be quiet, <laughs> you know. But the Lord is a man of war, and he has soldiers. And when you got saved, you became a soldier of the army of the king of kings. Amen? And he expects you and I to fight. And the problem with Christianity today, there's many of them. There's not only its pulpits, but its excuses of Christians called soldiers. We are the most unfighting people you've ever met in 2024. Now, if you're fighting, this doesn't bother you. If you're fighting the good fight of faith, you're like, amen, preacher, let them have it. Amen? But you can never forget that he expects us to fight. So here in chapter 11, we look at the northern campaign that General Joshua and the Israelites, uh, the Holy Ghost is going to teach us something uh, about fighting. And he's going to teach us something up north. Now, uh, I, I know most, I think some of you are. We have a couple transplants, Amen. I was born, well, I wasn't born in northern Michigan, but I was raised in northern Michigan. I spent all my life, minus three and a half years, of going to school in Florida, which, by the way, it was the hottest three years of my life. That's why I came back north. I like the idea of warm weather, but I don't like the idea of sweating in December. It just, I never could. Now, I complain a lot. I do. And I say, honey, 
we think about Tennessee, and she's like, did the Lord call you to Tennessee? I'm like, yeah, shut up, would you? <laughs> but anyway, she reminds me of how God's called me here, so forth, amen. But I know a couple things about living up north, and so do you. Uh, and I put together a list of just seven things, and I don't know if they're profound. But here's some things, uh, some lessons uh, living in northern Michigan. If you're going to burn wood, you need to cut it and split it and season it for at least four seasons. That's one year. You're like, no duh, preacher. Yeah, but tell that to someone who lives in Kentucky. They can be like, God, do what? Uh, number two, if you don't carry windshield washer fluid in the winter, you will run out in the middle of the snowiest, slushiest, and saltiest day of the year. <laughs> Amen. It's just lessons you learn living in northern Michigan. Uh, number three, the same applies for windshield wipers if you don't change them in the fall. <laughs> You'll get behind the, the milk wagon, and he's throwing up all and you're like, I can't see. Number four, northern Michigan is not good enough for southerners to live in year-round but good enough to live in your state in the months you personally would like to enjoy it without them. Amen. Amen. Number five, this might be profound. If you have any oversized holes or tears in your window screens in the month of May and June, nobody knows about it except for every mosquito in the county and your wife. I told you to replace it. Number six, upon the arrival of the first snowstorm of the year, everybody forgets how to drive except you. And finally, number seven, in northern Michigan, people spend 30 years paying off a home and getting away from everyone, only to turn around and buy a home with wheels on it and go live 30 feet from everyone they complained about for 30 years. <laughs> That's just some lessons from living in northern Michigan. And this morning, I want to give you some lessons from up north. And this is the northern campaign in Joshua chapter 11. There's some great lessons from up north. And we're going to learn about fighting this morning. And I don't know how far we'll get, but uh, I pray the Lord will bless it this morning. Let me give you this one here. This is about the Christian life, pertaining to Christian life and warfare. Lesson number one, the further you go in this Christian life, the less divine intervention you will receive in the fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Did you pick it up? I'll say it again. The further you go in this Christian life, the less divine intervention you'll receive in the fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the more it just comes down to fighting. Well, look at verse number 7 with me this morning. The Bible says, So Joshua came and all the people of war with him against them by the waters of Miram suddenly, and they fell upon them. I want you to notice here with me this morning that in verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, you have the largest confederacy that's standing against Israel. And interesting, a lot of generally they don't get along, but they get along, they get together, they camp together to do what? To fight against Israel. You know, that's going to repeat itself here pretty soon. And it kind of reminds me when Jesus Christ was on the earth and during his earthly ministry, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, well, for lack of better words, they couldn't stand being around each other because they were politically different. They were uh, religiously infuriated with each other, but they got together in agreement to be against Jesus Christ. And so you have all these kingdoms here. They're gathering themselves together that would not normally get along with each other. They, uh, they've uh, formed a great confederacy. The Bible says, uh, uh, as the sand of the sea in multitude, and they are gathering together against Israel. It's going to happen again soon. And they're pitched together against Israel. It's going to happen again soon. 
and all for one reason, to fight them and wipe them out. That's why you and I should not be surprised when you hear a, uh, a, a, a Muslim country like Iran saying our purpose is to wipe the Jew out from existence. Why? Well, they're going to they're try to do it anyways. But we know, how it, we know how it ends, right? The entire world turns against Israel in the last days, right? And that's why every country around them can't stand them. They just put up with them. And that's why they're still blowing each other up, and that's why they can't get along, and that's why they're Ishmael's there like a wild man, blowing himself up wherever he goes there. But one day, you know, it's going to happen. They're going to dwindle, dwindle down the nation of Israel till it's about one-tenth the nation, one-tenth in number, and then here comes their hero on a white horse. And I tell you what, there in the Valley of Megiddo, he takes all these nations and the saints that come back with 10,000 of the saints. The Bible says, Enoch said in Genesis chapter 5 and Jude chapter 1 there, and he comes back and he wipes them out. The blood runs as deep as a horse's bridle. And that's a foresight of what this is looking at. And they're all gathered together. But it's the largest enemy force they've ever seen. Isn't that something? This isn't their first day fighting, is it? This is the last campaign where they uh, conquer the land, if you could say it like that. And I want you to notice that in verses 1 to 5, the largest confederacy comes against Israel. But here's the thing. No supernatural help is given. Now, before you get upset with the Lord, uh, I think you and I need to pay attention to this thing and realize there's a great lesson for you and I to learn. Uh, see, the supernatural help is given in Joshua chapter 6, Right? That's Jericho, and the walls come tumbling down, right? They walk around the walls, and, and every time, once a day, and the seven daily runs seven days, right? And then the walls fall in. That's the Lord's supernatural divine intervention, isn't it? And they run up there and wipe everybody out, and the walls, they say, history, tradition says, is 18 feet thick. You say, were they 18 feet thick? I don't know. But he got houses up on top. I guess they're pretty thick, Amen. <laughs> And there's some divine intervention. You get to AI, and of course we know there was sin in the camp, and they had to deal with sin, but once they got the sin dealt with, then there was supernatural help against AI. And then you go to chapter 10, the day the sun stood still. And then, of course, the enemy thought in the southern campaign they are getting away from God, and God's like, oh, not so fast. I got some stones for you, buddy. And he wipes them out with stones. He buries them with stones. Amen? Supernatural help. But now the brakes get put on, the largest forces are camped against Israel, and there's no divine intervention. So you and I should take heed in the Christian life. The longer you live for the Lord, the less divine intervention there's going to be, and it boils just down to fighting. It boils just down to fighting. You say, well, I'm depressed, man. Well, look, I'm not your therapist. But I'm just saying, uh, after God's uh, provided for you in a divine way, didn't he save you from hell? That, I mean, when you first got saved, didn't the Lord do some things that were specifically special just for you? He did for me. And a lot of times when you play the prodigal and you go run out in the hog pen and get hog dewy all over and you come back to him, isn't he pretty special to you? And he sets your feet upon a rock and he establishes your going and he gets you going in the way that you should go and then he's just real to you like no one else has ever been real. But after a while, he expects you just to fight. Too many Christians sitting around waiting for a miracle. 
But when it comes to sin and fighting against your flesh and fighting against this world and fighting against the devil, you have got to learn that the farther you go in this Christian life, the less divine intervention it's going to be. You've got to go on the promises that God gives you. He gave Joshua promises in chapter or verse number 6, and Joshua said, I accept the promises. And they went out, and God said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take all these uh, all the horses, all the king's horses and all the king's men and I'll arrange the meeting but you're going to have to fight them. That's a sobering thought you and I need to consider this morning. Considering the world that you and I live in that says we're getting better. It's getting easier. And Some of you are going, what crack are you smoking? It is not getting easier. It is still harder to get out of bed this year than it was last year. <laughs> Your best life now. Whatever. I'm telling you, the farther you go in your Christian life, you cannot fool yourself to think you're going to sit around and wait around and go around the Jericho wall and expect God every time you got a problem with your sin, every time you got a problem with this world, and every time you have a devilish problem, that the Lord's going to take the Jericho walls and fold them in and let you waltz in and get the victory. What they got in verse 6 was a promise of victory. Look at verse 6. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Be not afraid because of them. For tomorrow about this time will I deliver them up all slain before Israel. What they got was a command to fight. Look at verse 6. For tomorrow about this time will I deliver them all up slain before Israel. Thou shalt hock their horses and burn their chariots with fire. You've been given, and they were given a promise of victory. They were given a command to fight but they were not given divine intervention. I'm not trying to make too much. I want to let this thing settle in because these are lessons from the north. It's interesting. I remember when my wife and I got married 28 years ago uh, when we had our, uh, when uh, you have the wedding and all that and you have all these gifts and that. And back then, I don't, even, I don't think they had registries. Uh, but anyways, we got like two or three knife sets. You know what I mean? You get like doubles and you just, Take them back to Kmart or whatever it was we shopped at then. Uh, but, but you get started off in your marriage and people give you a lot of things. You say, well, because you need it. <laughs> Amen. You might not think a pan's important, but go ahead and make dinner without a pan unless you, you're queen or king of the microwave, right? And so all these things are given to you, but after a while and after the honeymoon's over and after, uh, you know, just the arm and arm, man, this is just so exciting to be married and to be in love and to have someone to actually spend time with me. Amen? And all of a sudden, the reality sets in that you just kind of have to go to work. <laughs> At least you have someone beautiful to go home to. Amen? But the reality is, it takes work as a Christian. And I'm not saying, the law, I know the Lord will never leave us nor forsake us. Amen? He'll never leave us nor forsake us. But you can't sit there and expect not to fight the good fight of faith and not get in the harness and not do what you should against your sin, the flesh, the world, and the devil, and think God's going to come along and give you a knife set every time you need one. He don't going to do it that way. He wants to see if you're going to fight. Now notice this command. The command to fight these nations was to destroy their dominion. 
That's back in Leviticus chapter 18. We won't necessarily turn there right now. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, it was to destroy their dominion and to get them out of the land because of the abominable practices and the abominable customs that are laid out in Leviticus chapter 18. God said, I'm going to spew them out of the land. And he chose his people to go in to do it. So that uh, job there, the command to fight, was give the nations to destroy their dominion. And the command to fight was to uh, disable their devilment. You say, how so? Well, Josh was giving them the command uh, to hock their horses. That's to cripple them horses right up by the hamstring. You say, why? I'll let you read Leviticus chapter 18. They were messing around with animals. And before you think God's some mean, terrible person, if you want to know why God chose to drown out everything in Genesis chapter 6, it's because of that right there. And if you're here today, and I don't think you are, but if you happen to be here today and you're like, you're okay with that, you've been watching stuff you shouldn't and you need to go stuff that thing back in the cave. But it was to disable their devilment. That's Leviticus chapter 18. They were messing around with animals. God said, hock them horses. And then he said, what? Burn the chariots. He said, why do you have them burn the chariots? Well, that's to disavow their dedication. You see, over in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 11, those chariots had been dedicated to the sun god. Look it up on your own time. 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 11, those chariots had been dedicated to the sun god. And I'll tell you what, the Lord said, you go in there, you hock them horses, you cripple them. You say, but cripple them would kill them. Absolutely. Leviticus 18 and you burn their chariots. You say, why? Because they were dedicated to the sun god Baal. God means business when he tells you to fight. God means for you to fight the things that are wicked, and the things that are wicked in this world, and the things that are wicked according to the devil, and the things that are wicked according to your own flesh. Now that, the command to fight was to deter Israel's future dependency on what they told them to destroy. You say, what do you mean? Well, Psalms chapter 20, verse 7. David says some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. You say, what does that have to do with anything? Well, you see, they're supposed to be trusting God. So he says when you go in there, you, 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 you wipe out them horses and you burn them chariots. Lest you think having all those things, you don't have to trust me no more. Isn't that just like a Christian? God's been good to you and you first start off in the Christian life and it's tough going and you have to learn to trust him and you have to, you're so poor man you can't even pay attention. And all of a sudden through the process of time God starts blessing you a little bit, amen. And all of a sudden you're like, wow. And you finally, you can actually breathe a little bit in your life and, and he starts laying things on you when you really didn't deserve it. But he blesses you anyways because he loves you and you're his son, you're his daughter. And after a while you just want more because you think you deserve it. And he says, you burn them chariots, you hock them horses. I say, why? So they wouldn't be tempted to trust in all that for their strength. But that's the command to fight. Now the promise was given, instructions to fight was given, but the fighting itself was up to Israel. Notice how they did it. Fighting itself was up to Israel. Uh, first of all, in verse 7, you know what they did? They employed the element of surprise. <laughs> The element of surprise. The Bible says in verse 7, So Joshua came and all the people of war with him against them by the waters of Merim suddenly. I mean, they didn't waste no time about it at all. That's the element of surprise. 
If you're going to have a good chance in a military battle with some country, some nation, some rogue enemy, you take them by surprise. Uh, I think about the element of surprise. One of the greatest people in uh, military history who used the element of surprise was Thomas J. Jackson, General Stonewall Jackson, and his attack at the Battle of Chancellorsville. On May 2nd, 1863, General Stonewall Jackson marched 28,000 troops. 28,000 troops. Here's a U. You see the U? It's just an invisible U. You watching? See, it's an upside-down U. And old Stonewall Jackson, he was right here at the bottom of this U. What Hooker, General Hooker on the Union Army, he wanted to suck them up right in there and destroy them all, Lee and all the generals. He wanted to suck them right up inside that U. And so what General Stonewall Jackson did, he took 28,000 troops and did a flank move and marched 15 miles around and got the 11th Corps and busted the Union flank. And, and, it, and just, it was just a surprise attack and obliterated most of those troops. What a great Confederate victory. Exposing General Hooker's flank, inflicting massive Union casualties, and not a Union soul expected it. <laughs> Matter of fact, uh, I was reading uh, another historical account of that thing last night, and somewhere uh, the band was playing. In the 11th Corps, the band was playing. The regimental band was playing. <laughs> he said, I wonder what they were playing. <laughs> I don't know, but it abruptly stopped. <laughs> the element of surprise. And uh, it destroyed uh, half of General Hooker's forces. But Jackson's victory would be his last, for that was the battle that he died at. Friendly fire. Well, the element of surprise is something that works in the Christian life. You think about uh, your nation's history back in, what was it, uh, December 7th, 1941. Japan attacked the United States Naval Base at Pearl Harbor. The surprise attack by some 350 Japanese aircraft sunk or badly damaged 18 U.S. naval vessels, including eight battleships, destroyed or damaged 300 U.S. aircraft, and killed 2,400 men. Its effectiveness and destructiveness multiplied by its jaw-dropping confoundment. They were sleeping. Element of surprise, you know what Joshua did? God said, I'll tell you what, uh, I've delivered them up. God's saying, I'm going to arrange the meeting for all these forces, and all you got to do is show up and fight. <laughs> I'm thinking, Lord, you got any walls we could throw at them? <laughs> uh, Lord, uh, you might have to back the sun up for a day or two. <laughs> He's like, no, just go out there. I'm going to arrange the meeting, but you're going to have to fight. Well, they, uh, they employed the element of surprise. And not only that, they employed the element of pursuit. In verse 8, the Bible says, And chased them unto great Zidon, and unto Mizraph, uh, that word right there, and unto the valley of Mizpah eastward. Once he hit them, he hit them so hard, and then he just didn't go, Yeah, got them. He said, Let's go, boys. You see the, you see the back ends of them? Now, now chase them. It's kind of like uh, working out in the woods. Uh, you'll... Uh, it's like yellow jackets. Amen? You better be a fast runner because they'll chase you. <laughs> now, waspers ain't bad. Amen? They'll just sting and it'll hurt and you'll swell up and they'll go away. But them yellow jackets and them hornets, they'll sting and chase. And uh, the element of pursuit, element of pursuit was employed by Joshua. And you ought to pursue things in your Christian life. You can't be satisfied with one victory. God gives you a victory. Victory over your own flesh, you need to chase that thing down. 
You need to take back ground. Some Christians, uh, you might be a Christian here today, that at one time you would say, I remember when I used to do this for God. I remember the time in my life I used to be more faithful in church. Well, what happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Life happened. Amen? I hate that, but life happens. I know the world uses another vulgar saying, but life happens. You say, what happened? You're still saved. You just haven't taken back the ground you need to. You got victory. You haven't lost your salvation. And you're here today, praise the Lord for it, but you need to go and pursue that thing. The element of surprise is gone, but once you hit that thing, you hit as hard as you can, you chase it. <laughs> that element of pursuit. Now, another figure in history that uh, you may or may not be familiar with, some of you probably hate history, was Napoleon. He was a pretty uh, narcissistic fellow, but he was a great general. Uh, Napoleon fought 60 battles and only lost four. <laughs> Unfortunately, the last one was his Waterloo. That's a pretty good record. I mean, the Lions ain't even got that record, amen? <laughs> Imagine fighting 60 battles and only losing four. And the four he lost, uh, the only one that really mattered was the last one. Anyways, Napoleon's famous campaign in Italy in 1796 to 1797 saw him outmaneuver much larger Austrian forces, much larger Austrian armies, but because he hit them so hard and he kept pushing, he was so victorious and gained back so much ground. That's the element of pursuit. I think of Erwin Rommel, the great uh, German general. They call him the Desert Fox. And back during the Gazala Wars in Africa, you know what he did to the British? I was hoping uh, Sister Weaver would be here this morning. But for three weeks and five days, he hit that 8th Army so hard, that 8th British Army uh, that were right down with him, and he pushed them for three weeks and five days north, overrunning the, uh, the port of Tobruk. Uh, <laughs> and I'm just telling you what a great example of pursuit. You say, preacher, what? I give, give us all this history stuff. It's stupid. Is it really stupid? You know what men learn from history? The only thing men learn from history is that men never learn from history. And in your Christian life, the longer you're a Christian, the less divine intervention the Lord is going to give you. you just, it's going to boil down to fighting. And I'm trying to show you lessons from the north. <laughs> the way you fight is the element of surprise. You say, what kind of surprise? What are, you what are you talking about, the element of surprise? All right, when the Holy Spirit deals with your heart and what you need to deal with in your own personal life, stop, stop lollygagging around, stop playing around, and just get after it and go after it. That's the element of surprise. And when you hit it hard and it starts to scatter and you begin to get the victory, then you pursue it. And you take back the ground. You say, I'm scared to take back ground. Me too. But you take that back ground, and I'll tell you what you get with it. You get a lot of benefits when you take back ground. You get peace of mind. You get the spoils of war. I tell you, if some of us Christians would take back some of the ground that the devil's taken from us, I tell you, I believe our blood pressure would go down. But uh, that's how it rolls. Now, the element of surprise and the element of pursuit, it brought about an effectual destruction in verse 8 and 9. The Bible says, verse 8, And they smote them until they left them none remaining. And Joshua did unto them as the Lord bade him. He hocked their horses and burnt their chariots with fire. 
I'll tell you what, uh, I didn't have to have, uh, I wasn't in too many fights as a kid. Uh, pretty much a peaceful fellow until I got married. <laughs> Just a joke, actually. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> but uh, I didn't get in too many fights. And my parents raised me right, uh, you know, turn the other cheek. The old man always told me if someone started, make sure you finish it. I don't know if I could always finish it, you know what I mean? But at any rate. Uh, but it's interesting, as Christians, a lot of times we're just too pacifistic in this thing. Well, yeah, well, I just don't want to cause this. I'm telling you what, you've got to get in the saddle and learn to fight. Because if you think the Lord's going to take the hailstones from heaven every time you have a problem with your flesh, you're plumb crazy. Let me tell you what, when, uh, when I turned my, when the Lord showed me that I was wrong in 1996 and how I was living, when he showed me I was wrong and how I treated my parents in 1996, when he showed me I was wrong and how I was believing, when he showed me how I was wrong and my lack of church attendance in 96, you know what he did? He was really good to me. I got in church, and God began to do things for me that I can't really explain, and I wouldn't take time to tell you unless you think God operates like that on a daily basis because he doesn't. But he's so good and he's so personally so loving and he's so refreshing to his saints. But in the process of time, you can't expect that. He expects you to go out and fight. That's the lessons from the north. Now, do you realize what you've been given today, Christian? After salvation, you've been given a promise of victory and instructions to fight. Amen. Romans chapter 8, verse 27, the Bible says, Nay, in all these things we are... More than conquerors. You ever wonder why some Christians don't fight? 1 Timothy 6.12, the Bible says, fight the good fight of faith. That's pretty good instruction, isn't it? I mean, if you're a Christian, aren't you supposed to fight the good fight of faith? Isn't that, is that not true? Are we not more than conquerors? Well, preacher, I don't, you know, my situation, no, I, not, not, are we not more than conquerors? Amen. Did he not say fight the good fight? Amen. Did he not say endure afflictions, endure hardness as a good soldier? So the only way a good soldier is a good soldier is by putting up with hard times. He said, man, I should be the greatest soldier in the county. Amen. <laughs> My hard times I've been through, man, I ought to be on the A-list. I'm court-martialed half the time because you keep running away from the fight. All right, are you doing your part fighting against sin? You see, you got to use what God's given you. You say, well, what did the Lord give me? How about the Word of God and prayer? Don't you have a beautiful weapon right here? He's given you the Word of God and prayer. Oh, I see. You want Him to knock the walls down every time. But He's given you this book so you can get in here and get the weaponry you need and get the machinery you need and get the strategy you need, and get the instructions you need. You say, why? Because he expects you to fight. And the longer you're a Christian, I hate to say this, but it's, it's God's truth. The longer you're a Christian, the less divine intervention he's going to give you. I'm not saying he's not going to heal you if you got something in your big toe. I'm not saying he's not going to... Take care of you. I'm not saying, I'm talking about in your fight against sin and your fight against your flesh and your fight against this world and the devil. The longer you're a Christian, the longer you're in this thing, the less divine intervention he's going to give you. And that's a lesson you learn from the north. 
because I'm telling you what, in the South, you want to know why them Southerners are much more uh, emotional? Because you flip the pages of your Bible back, and all that stuff is supernatural. Wouldn't you be a little bit giddy if, uh, you know, all of a sudden you pray for, you know, one week straight, and you come into church house, and every pew is filled. Oh, man, oh, I'm somebody. Oh, look at the, the Lord answered my prayer. Okay, did he? That's supernatural. But, you know, we don't do it that way. He's going to bring them in one at a time. One, two, here for a few and out. Here's some more. Oh, we left the door open. Out they went. That's how he does it. Why? It's a fight. Are you doing your part to fight against sin? Have you used what God's given you? It takes an act of warfare to appropriate the victory. I'll say it again. It takes an act of warfare to appropriate the victory. So here's the thing. Just about the time you think you got things whipped in your life because you don't smoke, you don't drink, you dress right, you don't cuss too much, you read your Bible, you pray, that's the time you run into things like pride, laziness, jealousy, temper, misrepresentation, drawing judgment before you know the facts, taking someone's word for something because you're already prejudiced to start with, and believing something you heard because it's to your benefit to believe it. That's what I'm talking about. I look right, I dress right, I smell right, I don't smoke, I don't vape. Yeah, but your heart's dirty as the exhaust pipes of hell. The gist of it is this, once you think you have all the sin taken care of in your life, you have to deal with things like secret pride, bitterness, an unyielding spirit, self-centeredness, vanity, partiality, and an unmerciful attitude, fake humility, and apathy towards the things of God. Now notice this in verse 14. No skirmish, no spoil. No skirmish, no spoil. Verse 14, And all the spoil of these cities and the cattle, the children of Israel, took for a prey unto themselves. You ever stop and think that if you just fight, and look, fighting is tiring. Fighting is tiresome. Don't you ever, you ever just, I know you do. I'm giving you credit here. You fight against your sin some days, and it slap wears you out. You're like, someone pulls out in front of you, you're like, I'm... That's a fight. You walk in the door and your, your husband says something rude or your wife says something ridiculous and you're like, mm. you know what you're doing? You're fighting. You're fighting your flesh. And I know why you quit. Because you get wore out. And you're like, what's the use? Blankety, blankety, blank, 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 blank. But you know why a lot of Christians are going to get the judgment seat and they're not going to have anything? And they just stop fighting. All you got to do is fight, and the spoils of war are there. I want you to see it in verse 14. These are lessons from up north. No skirmish, no spoil. You are not going to get a crown without the cross. You're not going to be able to enjoy the upper room experience without a Gethsemane. 
You're not going to get rewarded if you don't fight. No skirmish, no spoils. You're not going to get the revelation without being stuck on Patmos. Well, that's the first one. I only got two this morning, and I'm done. But lesson number two, first one, the longer you're, further you go on this thing, the less divine intervention you get. It just boils down to fighting. And I know it sounds simple, but here's lesson number two. The future of the Christian life simply involves continuous fighting. The future of the Christian life simply involves continuous fighting. Now, we've been touching on this thing for the last uh, two or three weeks here, so it must be important. Verse 18, the Bible says, Joshua made war a long time with all those things. Christian, you have to realize and come to grips, like get a grip, <laughs> that your battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil is a lifelong process. It's a lifelong process in which all enemies are designed to be conquered by fighting. Look at verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land. All the enemies are designed to be conquered. Not only that, notice this in verse 19. The enemies in which you make peace with, you have to force them into servitude. Now this is dangerous ground. This is dangerous ground because you know what? You know who they forced into servitude? The HIVites, the Gibeonites, right? They should not have made peace with them. But they did and they kept their word and they had to force them into servitude. Now stay with me for a minute. Bible says in verse 19, there was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel save the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, all other they took in battle. Now let me give you the example here. Here's the application. And here's a tough one to start with. The internet is your enemy. I'm going to say it again. The internet is your enemy. And unless, unless, stay with me, unless you kill it 100%, which you can do and some of you should do today, amen? But if you do not kill it 100%, you will have to force its servitude to you for the rest of your life. That stuff is your enemy. You say, preacher, are you saying we can't? Listen, if you don't kill it, which you can, and some of you should, but I understand free will, you're going to have to make it serve you for the rest of your life. See what I mean? This isn't too difficult, is it? If that thing is your enemy, because it has to do with all the prince and power of the air's domain, then you're going to have to make it serve you. And you're going to have to make the things that come across it the right things. And you're going to have to make it serve you because the moment you stop making it serve you, it'll make you serve it. And that's the Gibeonites. Verse 19. Say, yeah, but Paul said, all things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. That's right. That's what he said in 1 Corinthians 6, 12. And then he said this, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Does the Internet have power on you? I don't know why I chose that. Does the Internet have power? You know, the Internet doesn't have power in some of y'all. Some of y'all were raised in a generation. You're like, you could care less about the Internet. Like, oh, the Wi-Fi went out. Who cares? But coffee's got a power over you. See, I went there. See, some of you, it's not coffee, it's Coke. <laughs> See, some of you, it's not Coke, it's 
Amazon. You say, how do you know? I might have met the Gibeonites once or twice. <laughs> See, some of you, it's not that. It's uh, your subscriptions. Some of you, it's uh, not that. It's just staying up late. Well, I'm just going to unplug. <laughs> That's the most dangerous thing you could do. Don't you dare unplug beneath the blue glow. Because there's other individuals and beings that know you're unplugging. And they're all too anxious to plug you into what you shouldn't be plugged into. You ever wonder why you're doing this sometimes and you're flipping? I mean, you get the strongest thumb in the county, you know what I mean? And all of a sudden, all of a sudden there that thing pops through and you're like, you ever wonder why that is? Well, yeah, preacher, see what it is, it's a, it's a mathematical algorithm. Baloney! It's the prince in power of this air, and he noticed that you don't have a firm grip, you don't have your foot on those king's neck, and it wants to see if you're willing to serve it for a while. I'm saying the future of the Christian life involves continuous fighting. 2 Corinthians 10.5, another great verse to help you in this battle this morning. The Bible says, casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. I always thought that interesting, high things. And now we live in a high state, so it even makes more sense. <laughs> yeah. High things. You ever, preacher, what's, we're supposed to cast down high things. Yeah, you ever stop and think about what them high things are? How about high thoughts? Proud thoughts, lofty thoughts, arrogant thoughts, demeaning thoughts, looking down at others. Okay, let's, let's do the practical. Christians getting high. That went over well. Okay, buzzed, tanked, plastered, you name it. Anything originating from satellites and technological advancements in this Earth's atmosphere, cell phones, satellite phones, cable television, streaming devices, demonic impulses, devilish urges, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. If you could just get that through your head this morning and put that verse in front of you, put it on your television and on your phone or wherever and on your computer, every time something comes across that thing, you just don't go, well, you know, that's just the world we live in. You're like, no, cast it down. Get angry at it. You say, why? Because the Christian life involves continuous fighting until the day you die. And the reason you stop fighting is because you just quit. It's too much hassle. It's too much energy. It's, I'm tired. People don't understand how I feel. You quit. Well, we got to move on here. The future of Christian life involves continuous fighting in which all enemies are designed to be conquered in which all enemies you make peace with must be forced into daily servitude, and in which all enemies that you refuse to fight will derail your spiritual progress. You say, well, I'll tell you what, I'm not a fighter, I'm, I'm a lover. 
Have <laughs> you heard that before? I'm not a fighter. You're a lover. And she takes the last donut in the fridge, and then I'm all over you. <laughs> now you're a fighter. Or you're in the bathroom when I want to be in there. Well, let me say this. Look at Joshua chapter 10, if you would. Joshua chapter 10 and verse 6. All enemies that you refuse to fight will derail your spiritual progress. Just two lessons from up north this morning. We're just about done here. Bible says in verse uh, 6, And the men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua to the camp to Gilgal, saying, Slack not thy hand from thy servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all, th for all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. You see what they did? They made peace with the enemy. And now because they made peace with that enemy, guess what? Now you've got to protect it. Now you're dragged into a war that you shouldn't have had to bend in in the first place. Protecting stuff you got no business protecting. Now you're spending unnecessary money to keep a bunch of things alive that ain't worth the powder and shot to blow it to New Jerusalem. And all that energy and all that effort, why? To save a bunch of things that should have been destroyed in the first place. You find that doing that in the Christian life sometimes? Making peace with the enemy, and now you got to make this repair and that repair, and you got to go here for that, and got to go here for that. And see what I mean? You choose to make peace with it, you got to make it serve you. And then I'll tell you what, if you don't fight, you'll be pulled into battle. You'll be pulled into battle that you don't have to fight. Refusing to fight the Gibeonites created an unnecessary need to protect things that were appointed to destruction. And now instead of being led by the Spirit in battle, we're pulled into battle by our flesh. Let me read this verse, Numbers 33, 55. The Bible says, But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which you let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and vex you in the land where you dwell. So as we close, here it is. There are lessons to be learned up north. Geographically speaking, north is the direction of God, the direction of the third heaven. The closer we get to the Lord, the more we have to fight, and the less divine intervention becomes the standard operation. The Lord wants to know if you believe what he says. If you believe what he says, then he can trust you to live for him and serve him through battles, through the warfare. But you know what? Here's what we're getting at. Too many Christians are sitting around waiting for a miracle. Waiting for a miracle. Let me tell you. Let me disappoint you this morning. It's not coming. It's not coming. You and I were told to fight the good fight, and it's a continual fight from here to the grave. One of the greatest comforts you should take from this message is that fighting goes on and on and on and on until we go home. So if you're here today and you're tired and you're wore out and you're a mess and you're a little bit nervous because you've been fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil, that's a great comfort because you're doing exactly what God wants you to do. As the pianist comes to play this morning, why not come and ask the Lord to help you re-enlist this morning? Are you a soldier for Jesus Christ? Are you a part of the army of the King of Kings? And maybe it's just time to sharpen the sword. Maybe it's time to say, you know what, it is time to put on the armor. Maybe it's time that you've done both of those and you just need to put your feet on the line and be present and accounted for. Christian, the moment you associate yourself with Jesus Christ publicly, 
The Lord then arranges the meeting of you and the enemy. Ain't that something? And if you won't confess them publicly, the Lord has an interesting way of flushing you out of your comfort zone to arrange the comfort zone hereafter. Lessons from the North. <laughs>